I want to begin this morning by, with a comment Warren Wiersbe made about chapter 4. If this book had ended at the last verse of chapter 3, history would have portrayed Jonah as the greatest of prophets. After all, preaching one message that motivated thousands of people to turn to God was no mean accomplishment. But the Lord doesn't look on the outward things. He looks at the heart and weighs the motives. That's why chapter 4 was included in the book. For it reveals the thoughts and intents of Jonah's heart and exposes his sin. What I believe God intends to show us in this final chapter of Jonah is this. And I mean all to know his love, believer and unbeliever alike. As followers of Christ, we're called not only to affirm his intention, but also to participate in the communication of his concern and love. So before I begin reading, as we normally do, let's open up with a word of prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, again, we come before you in this amazing, beautiful Sunday morning that you've given us. Lord, now as we get into your word, I just pray you speak to us, Lord. We want to have a heart like you. Give us a heart like you, Lord. So we may love like you. So that we may see people the way you see them, regardless of whether they're believers or not, Lord. Speak to us. Fill this room with your spirit, Lord. Love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord asked, Is it right for you to be angry? In these four, first four verses, we see that Jonah's suspicions about Nineveh's survival are now confirmed. And he responds to God's compassionate mercy. We learn immediately that Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. What this first verse suggests is that Jonah is absolutely livid. He's angrier than, well, just imagine you at your angriest point at somebody. Well, that's how he feels. He's angry at Yahweh that he had relented from annihilating the evil Ninevites. Repentance or not. For Jonah, it was a disaster that they had averted disaster. What Jonah, what God was pleased to do, had greatly displeased Jonah. And in his mind and heart, he considered it wrong and unfair. Unfair because the Lord didn't destroy a wicked people who had, do, who had done so much harm, so much evil against Israel. And wrong 
because he doesn't believe their evil should be forgiven. Now, before we move forward, it's important here to, um, to find out what Jonah's problem is. Wearsby, once again, offers great insight. If in chapter 1, Jonah is like the prodigal son, insisting on doing his own thing and going his own way, then in chapter 4, he's like the prodigal elder's brother, critical, selfish, sullen, and unhappy with what's going on. It isn't enough for God's servants to simply do their master's will. They must do the will of God from the heart. The heart of every problem is the problem in the heart. And that's where Jonah's problems were to be found. I agree with Rearsby. Jonah's issue was in his heart. And many times it's in ours as well. Especially, especially when we learn that God has compassion or God's compassion has been given to those we believe are undeserving of it and begin to feel as though that's unwrong or that's wrong and unfair. See the extension of grace to rebellious, to the rebellious isn't a repudiation of cosmic justice. Rather, it reveals God's freedom to deliver it to an, un an unlikely creature. Whenever those feelings of anger begin to stir within you, it's important that you examine your own hearts. Is your negative attitude about God's grace similar to the story of the unforgiven debtor who didn't extend that same grace? And again, that story is in Matthew chapter 18. And the elder brother's attitude towards the prodigal son, son in Luke chapter 15. As a believer, it shouldn't be, it should already be clear to you that God's grace, that the grace you received is founded on his unrelenting love. Well, here, or he demonstrates that here, he demonstrates that same exact grace in an outrageous way towards the ignorant and violent so that they may come to realize his unrelenting love as well. We then learn that Jonah sinks into a state of self-pity and in his despondency, he once again prays to the Lord who saved him from the brink of death. Now in this second prayer, the second prayer was much different in content and intent than the first inside the belly of the fish. There, he prayed his best prayer in the worst place. And here, he prays his worst prayer in the best place, at Nineveh, where God is working. His first prayer came from a broken heart but his second prayer came from an angry, self-centered heart full of eyes and me's. In, in his first prayer, he asked God to save him. But in the second prayer, he complained and asked God to take his life. 
Jonah's prayer, Jonah begins his prayer in verse 2 by stating the reason for fleeing towards Tarshish in the first place. The people would repent and the Lord would relent. You see, Jonah, from the beginning, from the moment he was called, he knew that this would happen. He knew that God would do this. So he ran away because he didn't approve of God's intent or action and refused to be a part of his forgiveness. As a prophet, a preacher, and a theologian, he further explains that he knew that Yahweh was a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Nevertheless, having now seen it for himself, having now seen God do exactly what he knew God would do, it instigates his anger and despair. This reveals that he doesn't want Nineveh to experience the same mercy that God had extended him, that God had shown him in the belly of the fish. Now the good that comes from this prayer is that all of us as readers of, of, of this chapter is that we're able to see five attributes or characteristics of God that I believe are important for us to understand. God is gracious. This refers to his favor, to the favor he extends to the undeserving. God is compassionate. This refers uh, to his tender and merciful affection, like that of a mother's love for her nursing baby. God is slow to anger, meaning again that he is patient. He is so patient with you and I. God is abounding in faithful love. This refers to his unfailing and loyal love that binds him to the promises he made to his people. And again, a good example of this would be the oath that we take when we get married. It's just, you know, he's making a promise to you that I will always always love you and lastly God relents from sending disaster now this characteristics we'll be covering more later on as we go through this passage and knowing these attributes of the Lord and familiarizing yourself with them will help you in any situation or any circumstance you find yourself in Listen to the words of Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. The wise must not boast in his, in his wisdom. The mighty must not boast in his might. The rich must not boast in his riches. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. In his book, The Knowledge of God, 
J.I. Packer wrote, How can we turn our knowledge about God into the knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth we learn about God into a matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. Well, Jonah's emotional calamity leads him to cry out at the end of verse 3, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to live or to die than to live. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 12, we learned that Jonah resigned himself to being thrown overboard. But then, praise God in chapter 2 for sparing his life. What we see now in, here in verse 3 is Jonah expressing his preference for dying rather than being restored to, a serving, to serving a merciful God. So how did God reply to this pity party prayer, the Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? Yahweh is asking him to ponder and reflect whether his anger results in any good. Jonah doesn't answer the question, but simply walks away from the conversation. Notice that God is seeking to engage him in his distress. Unfortunately, though, he isn't ready to talk. And how many times do we do that also? God wants to engage with us when we're at our lowest, when we're angry, when we're upset. And we're like, no, God, I'm too angry, too upset. I don't want to even talk to you right now. I just, you know, imagine again if you just sat and just listened to the Lord as he's talking to you and telling you, like, why are you angry? In expressing his anger against God, Jonah was being honest about his feelings, which isn't necessarily bad. However, we shouldn't think for a moment, or for a moment at all, that our feelings towards God are justified. When God asks us question, asks us question, his intent is for us to be honest about what's in our hearts. Now, this may be challenging to anybody who has a, just a difficult time expressing their feelings, sharing their feelings to, to, anybody, to anybody. Because having to do this, having to now share, uh, being honest with God about what's going on inside a person or inside them, uh, it, it, well, it's challenging because they know that God already knows what's really going on inside of them. You see, you can't fool God, so you may as well just be honest with Him. As our Creator, the Lord has every right to question us. And as the objects of His creation, we owe Him answers. Here are four familiar biblical examples of this. In Genesis 3, God asks, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? What is this that you have done? In Genesis 4, he asks, Where is your brother Abel? 
What have you done? In Matthew 16, Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? And in Acts 9, the Lord asks, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Adam, Peter, and Saul knew they couldn't lie to God. Now going back to God's question in our passage, is it right for you to be angry? This is the question you ought to ask yourselves whenever you get angry with God. However, the answer must always be, no, Lord, your ways are right, even if I don't understand them. Yes, Jonah was angry towards God. And yes, it was all right for Jonah to state his anger towards God. However, his anger was unjustified and he needed to repent. Psalm 37, 8 says, Refrain from anger and give up your rage. Do not be agitated. It can only bring harm. God knows what's inside of us. I mean, he's given us these feelings. I mean, we can't deny that he's given us, you know, these, sometimes these feelings of anger. And there's a good anger and a bad anger. But when that anger causes us to start believing things about God that aren't true, or it starts to make us behave in ways that don't glorify him, or that, you know, attitudes or actions that he says, oh, man, yeah, that's, that's my kid, you know. Um, again, we need to be aware of these feelings. Figure out, you know, for ourselves, ask ourselves, why am I feeling this way? Why am I angry? You know, and, and, and just allow them again to just speak to your heart, speak to you and tell you and show you what's really going on inside of you. Again, there's that anger, that rage, it's no good. It's only going to do you harm. Well, in the next few verses we're about to read, Yahweh provides an object lesson in order to demonstrate His compassion. So let's pick up in verse 5. Jonah chapter 4, verse 5. Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly displeased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching wind, a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah, verse 5. We learn that up to this point, Jonah is still in Nineveh. However, for the second time in this book, Jonah abandons his place of ministry. He leaves Nineveh and sets up a comfortable shelter for himself 
east of the city. And there, possibly in, on a hill overlooking this, the city, he intends to spend the next 40 days to see what would happen. In his mind, maybe, just maybe, he hopes the Lord, he hopes the Lord will realize that he made a mistake and will see that the Ninevites aren't really repentant. They aren't really, they, they were just talking a good game that really they were wicked people and that they needed to be punished and they needed to be destroyed. As Jonah was sitting there, again, his, his intent is to sit there for the next 40 days to see what would happen. He sits in that shelter sulking. The Lord, while he's there, the Lord seeks to find another way into the conversation. This time, he does so through the, the school of creation. Yahweh appoints three instruments of his creation in order to teach Jonah a lesson about his compassion. Now keep in mind, as we go through these three instruments, that the word appointed here in chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish. This implies that God had prepared these three things for a unique purpose, for a special reason. Now in verse 6, it says that God appointed a plant. God knew that Jonah was very uncomfortable sitting in that booth. So he graciously provided a plant and enabled it to grow over Jonah. Now the, the leaves of this plant were especially designed to provide shade for his head to rescue him from the discomfort of the blistering sun. He was refreshed. He felt good. Again, as a result of this plant, as of these leaves, we read that Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. He was happy. He was like, yes, this plant is awesome. If you think about it, though, the fish that God provided in chapter 2 was Jonah's first deliverance because it provided physical safety. Here now, the plant was his second deliverance and it provided because it provided physical ease. The plant was also designed to calm Jonah out of his evil temper and into a new hearing of God's perspective of the recent events in Nineveh. We then learn in verse 7 that God appointed a worm. Jonah's happiness was short-lived when in the following morning God appointed this worm. Now I've heard different things about what this worm could have been. It could have been this black caterpillar. But when I've seen videos and pictures of, of worms or caterpillars or whatever eating leaves or plants, it takes forever. It takes a long time. I mean, it may take, it may take a, a caterpillar maybe overnight to consume a small little plant or but to consume a plant big enough to cover Jonah. I, I, this was a 
you know, again, an amazing different kind of worm. Well, again, this worm attacked the plant and we learned that it, it withered. Lastly, we read that God appointed a scorching east wind. This, again, the scorching wind combined with the blazing sun were beating on Jonah's head so much that it nearly knocks him out in a state of extreme misery. All Jonah wanted to do was die. The way he sees it, if Yahweh will not take his life, he hopes that his life will just fail. A significant application here is our common human experience of protection and exposure in relation to God. So many of our actions to protect or shield ourselves from attempts to ward off cat uh, catastrophe or trouble. But you see, only God can save. Jonah seeks safety in the belly of a, of a, of a ship, but only finds but, uh, but, finds on, but finds it only in, in uh, God's fish. He seeks protection by building a shelter, but God's plant gives him true shade. It's not until the plant is killed that he finally talks with God about his anger. Not only that, but he also listens to Yahweh's concern for the protection and salvation of all creation. We all rightly seek security and salvation, or security and salvation in life and protection from death. Yet, it's only when we fully rely on the God of Scripture and not on anything else as the source of our security this message of Jonah into our lives. Only then will we be able to live securely between the false protection of greatly pleased and angry enough to die. A simple test of character is to ask yourself, what makes me, ang what makes me happy? What makes me angry? What makes me want to give up? How you truthfully and honestly answer these questions will determine how useful you'll be in winning the lost. I know for myself, and I'm being completely honest with you here, these are my answers. Glorifying God makes me happy. Seeing people glorifying the Lord makes me happy. Seeing people come to salvation, man, that brings me great joy. Seeing people overcome obstacles. You know, after again holding on to the Lord makes me happy. What makes me angry? Sin and disobedience makes me angry. 
seeing the events again, and we spoke about this earlier, that happened this week. That stuff makes me angry. Seeing the hatred that's been going on in this country, the political hatred or the political rhetoric that's causing all kinds of hatred makes me upset, makes me angry. Seeing people dying of cancer, people dying of all kinds of diseases makes me angry because it's not supposed to be, it wasn't supposed to be that way. It wasn't, because, it wasn't until sin entered the world that all these things happened. That stuff makes me angry. And what makes me want to give up? It's when I allow the devil to whisper into my ear that I'm useless, that I'm ineffective, and that I'm worthless. This honest assessment of myself not only motivates me to keep preaching the word, but also humbles me with the reality that God alone sustains me. While the comment he makes at the end of verse 8 leads into the second round of the same conversation between Jonah and Yahweh that was started in verses 3 and 4. So let's see how that goes as, again, we pick up and finish off this chapter. Again, picking up in verse 9. Jonah chapter 4, verse 9. Then God asked Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it is right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, You cared about the plant which you did not labor over, and, and did it not grow? Or, and did not grow. It appeared in a night, it appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? Here, we learn God's lesson about His love for all. His outrageous love for all. Regardless of how ignorant, abusive, this lesson begins with God essentially asking the same question He asked in verse 4. However, this time, the question is asked, in a more relatable and personal way. As Jonah is feeling that death is a better solution than the one he's in, Yahweh asks him, is it right for you to be angry about that? On the surface level, the issue here is about the death of the plant. It's life, death, has not only caused him um, joy, but also brought the misery of that sunstroke. Nevertheless, Jonah's anger over the continuation of Nineveh's exist existence remains just beneath the surface. In verse 8, Jonah speaks 
to, at first, to no one in particular. He's just speaking into the wind. But Yahweh, he listens. He hears him and engages him by asking, well, with a, pre with a question he asked him previously, focusing this time on the plant rather than on Nineveh. Jonah responds verbally to Yahweh this time rather than just walking away. For the first time, he admits his anger to God. Jonah emphatically replies, yes, it is right. Jonah doesn't want to consider an alternative to his anger. God, however, offers him a new perspective as an opportunity for Jonah to be transformed. Now, it's not clear, nor are we told whether jo Jonah accepts it. In that moment, though, his only concern is about the plant and how it became a source of protection and comfort for him. God, however, in verse 10, takes Jonah's concern over the plant and turns his attention to, his intrinsic, to its intrinsic value as something he created. Jonah's concern or his anger over the death of the vine is right, but for the wrong reasons. God reminds Jonah of the creator-created relationship. You did not labor over and did not, you did not labor over it and, uh, and did not grow. Jonah failed to see, to see this in his concern for his own protection and his own comfort. The Creator's concern is precisely the perspective Jonah lacks concerning Nineveh. And it's this perspective on creation that silences him from here on forward. He has nothing else to say. In the final verse, God teaches Jonah about his compassion for lost sinners. Jonah's concern for the life, death, again, of the plant is also God's concern. But God's concern extends to more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish their right from their left. And also, notice, he says also, and many cattle as well. Having elicited some concern from Jonah over a living thing, God asks Jonah to understand his extension of concern for an ignorant population. If I were to paraphrase God's concern, it would sound like this. If you feel compassionate about the destruction of a plant you did not create, shouldn't I be concerned about the destruction of a people and animals I did create? God is inviting Jonah to see the tender heart of a creator desperate to be reconciled to the creation he has tended and made to grow. He also invites Jonah 
to share in this mission of reconciliation of enemies and to share his logic and pity. The lesson is clear. Not only does God's concern for his people go beyond Israel, but he is totally justified in doing so. The lesson of Jonah reminds us God of all people. The key to Jonah's special contribution here in the Old Testament is found in God's question about the people in Nineveh, the people of Nineveh in verse 11. There's some disagreement among commentators as to who the people are that cannot distinguish between their right and their left. Some have suggested that this means young children who have literally not yet learned the difference between their two hands, as in Deuteronomy 1.39. Others suggest that it's just a figure of speech. That means, means uh, figure of speech meaning that the Ninevites, Ninevites lacked a developmental ethical discernment, or they lack knowledge, they lack the knowledge of God's law and therefore aren't responsible for their actions, thus making them virtual children. But in Jonah, they are also rational people who are responsible for their actions and are quick to repent. We miss the point of God's question if we limit the expression left to helplessness. The expression means that all Ninevites who are ignorant, uh, that all the Ninevites who are, in, the expression means that all Ninevites who are ignorant, all of them, but are still responsible. God's point is that they're capable and responsible, yet ignorant in their culture of, culture of sin. This is why repentance not education is necessary. They don't know their right from their left because they developed a rational culture of violence. Jonah's concern about the plant is the opening God takes to teach about his own motivations for being concerned in verses 10 and 11. His invitation for us for you and me is to understand and act in accordance with his way in the world. See, concern means to take action with tears flowing down your cheeks. That's what genuine concern is, is you're broken, you're crying, you're like, oh my goodness, look at those people. Oh my goodness, you see what they're doing. And it breaks your heart. That's what genuine concern is. This kind of concern is suffering action. Here, God takes upon himself. He bears the weight of its violence, the pain of a thousand plundered cities, including Israel's. God chooses to suffer in the place of Nineveh. His tears flow instead of theirs. Someday, someday, he may even choose to die. 
Jonah had pity on the plant that perished, but he didn't have compassion for the people who would perish and live eternally apart from God. Jeremiah and Jesus looked upon the city of Jerusalem and wept over it. And Paul beheld the city of Athens and was greatly distressed. Jonah, however, looked on the city of Nineveh and just seethed with anger. As we look at the world around us, we must learn the lesson of God's pity and have a heart of compassion for lost souls. We should have the same heart Paul had when he wrote in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. It should break our hearts when we see people who are unrepentant, people who don't practice God's word, people who don't realize that time is running out, people who are self-destructing, people who refuse to care. If God's heart breaks for these people, then it should break ours as well. The book, this book of Jonah, forced Israel and Judah to consider that their deliverer and Lord was not theirs alone but the creator of a wide creation that included other peoples. This is meant to help readers learn from Jonah's lesson about God's character. He is sovereign, righteous, gracious, and merciful. He desires his people to obey him and not put limits on his love. God is kind to evil, to an evil and ungrateful humanity, and patiently desires for repentance. So what became of Jonah? I mean, it, it seems like, again, the story just cut off, and we're like, well, what happened? What's the rest of it? As we have seen, the book is not about him in the end. It's about God. So the texture never tells us how this story ends. We may have a hint, however, from an unexpected source. In the introduction, in the introduction I gave a few weeks ago, I noted that Jonah is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. Now, if I were to take a guess, I would say that Kings, that the Kings incident comes after the book of Jonah. You see, there in Kings, we find Jonah giving a message of God's compassion on an undeserving people. The explanation by the narrator of Kings 
even sounds a bit like God's assessment of Nineveh at the end of Jonah. In 2 Kings uh, chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, it says, For the Lord saw that the affection, affliction of Israel was very bitter for both slaves and free people. There was no one to help Israel. The Lord had not said that this the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel under heaven. So he delivered them by the hand of Jeroboam and Jeho Jehoash, Jehoash. Perhaps Jonah learned the lesson of God's compassion after all and spread the news to the northern kingdom, Israel. In Matthew 12:41. Jesus used Jonah's ministry in Nineveh to inform the religious Jews who rejected him that something greater than Jonah is here. So how is Jesus greater than Jonah? Jesus is greater than Jonah because he was God's only begotten son. Jesus is greater of message of grace and salvation, Jonah's ministry was only to only but one city. But Jesus is the savior of the world. Jonah didn't love the people he came to save, but Jesus had a compassion for sinners and proved his love for dying for them on the cross. On the cross, outside the city, Jesus asked God to forgive those who killed him. But Jonah waited outside the city to see if God would kill those he wouldn't forgive. Yes, Jesus is greater than Jonah. And because he is, we must give greater heed to what he says to us. You see, those who reject him will face greater judgment because the greater the light, the greater the responsibility. Now, as I begin to close this message, again, I hope that it, you know, the words here, not just from, I, I, well, yeah, this chapter we covered speak to you personally, but not just that, but the entire book. You've learned what it is that God is trying to, 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 teach us when it comes to, you know, preaching and sharing the love of Christ to a wicked, violent, you know, unrepentant world. We need to step outside of ourselves and see the world and see people, regardless of what they look like, regardless of how they smell, how, you know, what's going on in their lives, whether they're in prison or whether they're living in mansions, whether they're Republican, Democrat, whether they're black, white, Mexican, you know, whatever race. It, we need to see people as God sees them, as his children, he loves them. Yes, they're disobedient. And, you know, we all know, we've, those of us that have children are, you know, they may be disobedient 
They may do things that completely anger, anger us, but that will never, ever take away. Nothing they do, I know, well, I can speak for myself for sure, nothing they do will ever take away how much I love them. And God, you know, he sees again the wickedness of people, and he's like, oh, man, they... And he loves them again. We, we need to remember that he loved them so much that he sent his only son to die for them. He sent Jesus to die, to suffer, to be whipped, to be spat upon, to be slapped, to die. He did all that because he loves us, to die for our sins to die for your sins, for my sins. Man, again, what an amazing, beautiful, wonderful God we have. So I want to encourage anybody that has never accepted him, has never made Jesus into your Lord and Savior, to just give him the opportunity, just say, okay, Lord, I've tried everything else. Nothing else is working. I'm going to turn to you now, faithfully and honestly. And you'll see that once you do, man, he's going to begin changing your life, your attitude, the way you see things. And if that's you and you're ready to do that, just wherever you're at, close your eyes and, and, and with all sincerity, pray this prayer from the bottom of your heart. Lord, forgive me of my sins. I failed. I've messed up. And my relationship from you has been broken. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I confess that he is Lord. And now I open the door to my heart to him. Lord, I accept your forgiveness. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and make me new. Teach me your ways, Lord. Thank you for sending him and for dying for me sending him to die for me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've prayed that, just trust me, believe me. I mean, the Bible says, or if you don't believe me and don't want to trust me, the Bible says that you are born again. You are a born again believer. Now, it's important that you surround yourselves with, surround yourself with other Christians and, and start, you know, getting into his word, you know, going to Bible study, that's definitely helpful. But, uh, but yeah, if you need help with that, call us, let us know. We'll, uh, we'll help set you up wherever you're at. Um, those of us, again, that are here, let me end with this. Let us have a heart of compassion. When we leave these room, when we leave this room, to see the world as Jesus sees it, as the Lord sees it, 
as vile and as, as horrible as that person is. And again, think of the person you, you hate the most because they've done you the most harm. That person needs Jesus. That person needs salvation. That person needs redemption. At one time, before you knew the Lord, you were the same way. But look what he's done in your life now. So again, just pray for those people. doesn't necessarily mean you have to, you know, now start being buddy buddies with them. I mean, if that's what the Lord's calling you to do, is just to, you know, start approaching them, start being friendly, then, you know, and obviously obey. But begin with just praying with them, seeking out for their best interest. So let's close with the word of prayer. Lord, we come before you again and, and we do we ask for forgiveness for those times we've been angry, mad, frustrated, Lord, at, because you've blessed others, because others, maybe others have come, we've seen others come to salvation that we feel like, man, it would have been better for them to die. Lord, that's, you forgive us for having that mindset, for having that, for, for even thinking that, Lord. Lord, we should have, give us your heart, Lord so that we may see everyone the way you see them, with pity and compassion and love. Bless this next time of fellowship. Bless everyone's upcoming week. Lord, may their light shine forth in their communities, in their schools, in their workplaces, wherever they may be. Thank you for this book of Jonah. We glorify you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.